Well, hello everyone. However and wherever and whenever you are joining us today, it is so nice to have you here with us. We're going to be continuing on in our series on Ephesians, and we'll be picking up in the second half of chapter two. But before we dig into that, I have a question for you. What do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know if there are any other youngest children watching this today, but as the youngest child in my family, this question always seemed terribly urgent. What do I want to be when I grow up? I'm going to say something very controversial. We can fight about it later if you want to, but for now I'm the only one with a microphone, so I'm just going to say it. I have the best family in the whole world. My parents and my brothers are all talented, capable, intelligent, funny, loving, and supported human beings. And because they are such, growing up there were very few spheres of my world where I was just Sandy. Usually, I was Kevin and Sherry's daughter or I was Benjamin or Alexander or Nathaniel's sister. And I never really minded this. In fact, usually my first reaction to being called such was, well, yes, I am, and thank you for noticing. And then my second reaction was just a little bit of stress because before I had any reputation of my own, their reputation preceded me. And I wanted so badly to live up to the compliment of being called Kevin and Sherry's daughter and Benjamin and Alexander and Nathaniel's sister. It is for this reason that I still remember being the only Hicks sibling who did not win the grade eight science award in middle school, thus breaking a family legacy of three years running. I know. My capable, talented, intelligent, funny, loving, and supportive family did not mind this in the least, and I'm certain that they had forgotten about it until just this moment. But us youngest children have something to prove, and I am certain that I will remember this until the day that I die, and that on my tombstone will be written, Sandy Hicks Killeen, wife, daughter, sister, provably bad at eighth grade science. But what I wanted to be when I grow up has changed a lot over the years, ranging from zookeeper to teacher to baker to social worker to artist to physiotherapist to camp director to professor. At the moment, I think I might like to be a pastor when I grow up. But through every ambition, what I really wanted was to grow up to be like my family. Whether you are approaching your high school graduation, navigating your way to the right college or university or career, or counting down the days until your retirement, there is a sense in which this question, what will I be, still feels urgent. What will I be when I grow up? What will I be remembered for? What will my place be? And in a world which values individual achievement, this identity-forming question becomes all wrapped up in what we do or what we achieve. Maybe what we don't do or what we don't achieve. Our story becomes all about what we do. And this is why I love the book of Ephesians, because if you've been following along with our series, then you know that Paul is just falling all over himself in his eagerness to explain to us that our identity is really found in an entirely different story. And it isn't a story that is primarily about you or about me. It's the story of God, who out of the abundance of his goodness and love has been at work since the dawn of creation to restore and redeem humanity. It's the story of Jesus, in whose death and resurrection we have also been made alive. It's the story of what God does, and not of what we do. And because of that, as we've worked through the first chapter and a half of Ephesians, we haven't encountered yet a single action that wasn't God's action. We haven't even encountered a call to action or an instruction. Paul invites us just to sit still, 
and to hear the story of how God has made himself known to us by pouring out grace after grace after grace. And when we finally do arrive at an imperative in verse 11 of chapter 2, it's maybe not the one that we expect. Paul says, remember, in light of all that God has done and who God has already declared you to be, remember. And I don't know about you, but by the time I get through the first chapter of Ephesians and the first 10 verses of chapter 2, I'm just all fired up and ready to go. After all, in verse 10, Paul has just said that we are God's masterpieces created in Christ Jesus to do good works, to which I want to reply, yeah, good works. Let's go do those right now. But Paul's not finished yet, and it's rude to interrupt people. So I keep reading to verse 11, where he says, therefore, remember. I'm a bit of a language nerd, and remember happens to be a really fun word because it can mean so many things. It can mean idle remembering, as in recalling all of a sudden and out of nowhere that rad floral denim baseball cap that you owned in the 90s and thought was the height of fashion, and then just moving on with your day, totally unchanged, except for the fact that now maybe you're a little bit sad that you no longer have a rad floral denim baseball cap. But usually, remembering is linked to some kind of action. If I remember that I need to pick up milk, but then I don't actually go and pick up milk, when I get home, I haven't remembered to pick up milk. If I remember your birthday, but I don't acknowledge it, then I haven't really remembered your birthday. And we see this all throughout the Bible too. Remembering is active. It's linked to some kind of action. When the psalmist remembers the name of the Lord in Psalm 119, he keeps the law of the Lord. When God remembers his covenant with Israel in the book of Exodus, he acts to free them from slavery. Remembering in the Bible is linked to some kind of purpose. And here in Ephesians, it's a rehearsal. Paul invites his readers to rehearse their testimony, to remember the story that is really the foundation of their identity. And he begins with this call to remember what you were. Verses 11 to 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Paul is speaking to a primarily Gentile audience, which is to say that they weren't Jews, which also applies to a great many of us. And this is really the first part of Paul's instruction to remember what you were, which I guess is maybe better said, remember what you weren't. But what's interesting about that is that if you ask the average Gentile person living in the Greco-Roman world to describe themselves, I don't think this is what they would say. I don't think they would say, well, the most important thing you need to know about me is that I'm not a Jew. Typically, people describe themselves according to what they are, or what they can do, not by what they can't do or by what they aren't. And in fact, in this place and at this time, I would dare say that if they even thought about not being Jews at all, they were maybe kind of glad about it, about it because of the privileges and protection that worship of the empire afforded them. But then these Gentiles came to faith in Jesus. And what an impossible thing. Something that they and we had absolutely no claim to 
suddenly they understood what the Jewish people had been onto this whole time as God made himself known to and through them throughout history. They, and we, had been on the outside of this world in which something amazing and impossible had happened. So Paul starts by saying that the thing that formerly defined them is what they weren't. They weren't Jews. And this had all kinds of implications for them. Because they weren't Jews, they were separate from Christ, as in the Messiah, God's anointed king who had been promised to the Jewish people and for whom the Jewish people had been waiting. The Gentiles were not citizens of Israel. They didn't belong to that people group. And so they were also foreigners to the covenants of the promise, to the covenant with Abraham, that one day a descendant of his would be a blessing to the whole world to the covenant through Moses with Israel at Sinai, which provided a way for sins to be forgiven and for the presence of God to be experienced, anticipating the work of the Messiah. To the covenant with King David, that one of his descendants would rule God's people forever. And now the fulfillment, the ultimate expression of these covenants had come in Jesus, and there was nothing in the lives of the Gentiles or in their past that could earn them a spot in it. They were outsiders, And there was no reason that they or that we should expect to be brought in now. And because of this, Paul also said that they had been without hope and without God. They had, of course, like we all have, placed their hope in unsubstantial things. In our money, in our talents, in our abilities, or our health, or in other people. But the problem is that all of these hopes fall flat because they aren't resting on a firm foundation. They can't really solve my biggest problem. Sometimes we read this part of Ephesians as though the really important thing was the the division between Jew and Gentile. And of course that was a factor, but what is really important was the meaning behind this division. In the Old Testament, we read that the people of Israel were, were meant to be a giant visual example to the world that God is good that he is perfect, he's not like anything else, that he's holy. And so his people needed to be distinct, to be unlike anything in the world around them. This is what the people of Israel were meant to be. And of course we know that this didn't always happen as it was meant to. And of course we know that their abilities fell short, just like ours do. But this was the intention. So the problem in Ephesians 2 isn't really the barrier between Jew and Gentile, even though that's there. The problem is really the barrier between sinful people and a holy God. And none of my hopes, none of my accomplishments are going to be big enough to overcome this for myself. So if someone asks me my story to tell them what my life was or would be without Jesus, I'm not just going to tell them about what I did or what I achieved. I'm going to tell them what I was. I was an outsider, miles away from hope, totally separated from God. Well, have a great week, everyone. Just kidding. We're not going to leave you there because the gospel doesn't leave you there. This isn't your whole story. Paul doesn't ask us to remember this part of our story so that we can feel badly about ourselves. He asks us to remember what we weren't so that we can remember what Jesus has done. Verses 13 to 18. But now in Christ, you who were but now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Despite what we were, we have been brought nearer by the blood of Jesus, who is everything that we were not. In his death, he satisfied the requirements of the law that could not be met by any person on either side of the barrier between Jew and Gentile. And now he himself has become our peace, reconciling us to each other, even as he reconciled us to God. And he did this for a purpose. He did this in verse 15 in order to create one new humanity out of the two. The Jewish people who needed to be forgiven and put their trust in Jesus, and the non-Jewish people who needed to be forgiven and put their trust in Jesus. And maybe this distinction between Jew and Gentile doesn't feel very contemporary to us, but I think that just possibly in the year 2022, we could look around and find some other barriers, some other walls of division and hostility which might hinder our relationships to one another. I would even venture that we wouldn't have to think really hard about it. But Jesus has made us, all of us, who have placed our hope in him into one new people a barrier-breaking people, a people that is united across geography and culture and background and language and family relationships and economic status and political values, so that regardless of how we differ, we are united by Jesus, who proclaimed peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. Through Jesus, who in his death reconciled us both to God and to each other, all barriers have been removed because the peace that exists now between us isn't rooted in what we are able to generate in ourselves. It's just the natural outflow of the peace that Jesus has already created between us and God. And if you're here today and you're really struggling with feeling that peace between yourself and your brother or your sister who's on the other side of a barrier that is really important to you, I want you to know that Jesus knew that we would struggle with this. And he prayed for us. And he prayed specifically for this. In the book of John, just before Jesus is arrested, he prays for his disciples. And not just for them, but for all of the followers of Jesus who would come after them. John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. These are the words of Jesus. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. I'm going to read some of that again just because it's so good. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. This is the kind of peace 
that Jesus has accomplished for us. The unity that exists between God the Father and God the Son, given to us as a free gift in our relationship with God, so that we can display that unity in our relationships with each other. Not as something that is our own doing or our own work, but as something that has already been accomplished by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as something that is fueled now by Jesus' own prayers for us, so that even as barriers are broken down between us, our lives become a testimony to the person and work of Jesus. Remember who you were, but remember what Jesus the Messiah has done and is doing. And then finally, Paul says, remember who you are, verses 19 to 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Paul uses two ways of expressing our new identities as newly created people in Christ. And I love the way that they work together to form a beautiful, reflexive, mishmashed metaphor. We, who were far away, foreigners and strangers, outsiders to the covenants of promise, have now been brought into the household, the very dwelling place of God. And not just as interlopers or house guests, not with the feeling of being on edge or keeping our eyes on the clock for when it's time to leave so that we don't become an imposition, but as deeply loved daughters and sons, welcomed home to the place and the presence of God from which we will never be made to leave. And in this presence, each one of us is a brother or sister to the other, reflecting the image of God, our Father, in a way that no one else can. And even as we are welcomed into the dwelling place of God, we also become the dwelling place of God. As we are shaped by his Holy Spirit, we become his holy temple. Each of us united and transformed and built together on the solid foundation that is Jesus. He is the cornerstone, the starting block of our construction, and the reason that we don't fall apart when things become tense or difficult. Because who I am, and who you are, and who we are together is built on the immovable foundation of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and not on anything as flimsy as what I can do or what you can do. So you know what this means then, don't you? It means that I get to be exactly what I always wanted to be when I grow up. I get to become just like my family, as I am transformed along with my brothers and sisters to become ever closer and ever more like God, our Father. So then maybe on my tombstone, instead of provably bad at eighth grade science, you could write, she belonged to Jesus. Who cares if I ever do anything else? Will you pray with me today? Father, today again, we are amazed by your love and by your grace and by your mercy, which is demonstrated to us in Jesus. And we ask that you would help us to remember. When we are discouraged, when we feel stuck, when we work hard but don't make progress, would you help us to remember what we were, to remember what Jesus has done, 
and to remember what we are so that we can find our meaning and our purpose in you. And Father, when we are frustrated, when we don't understand, when we disagree with those that you have put in our paths to love, would you help us to remember what we were, to remember what Jesus has done, and to remember what we are so that we can love one another well with the peace and the unity that is only possible in Jesus. And as you build us into a people who define ourselves in you and who are united by the love that you have first given to us, we ask that it would be evidence to the world around us of the grace, the mercy, the transformation, the hope that is available to them in you. Would your peace go with us and before us and behind us into our week so that everywhere we go becomes your holy dwelling place. And we will give all of the glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.